Sabbath. Welcome to the Monday version of the Daily Walk. I'm your host, Wayne Clevenger, and today we have good stuff from Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 through 14. And the one thing we always have to remember when we're looking at Paul's letters is who he is writing to. Okay, so we're going to start off today by dispelling some very often misinterpreted reading from 1 Corinthians 11. I have seen people take this out of context to the extreme and actually take this to <laughs> to heights. And, you know, if that's how they want to interpret it, that's okay, because remember Paul said, don't make a brother fall because of your beliefs. But I've also seen people take this to the heights where this becomes their rule, and anyone who doesn't follow their rule is sinning because of what they read here. And remember, also, Paul said, we don't want to cause another person to sin, nor do we want to cast judgment because our faith is, and I'm doing quote marks, supposedly stronger. So we really have to keep in check what our personal convictions on are on, and I think that's why Paul writes about personal convictions so much. So in this letter... Paul is writing, obviously, to the church Corinth and to the Corinthians. And in that culture, that environment, there are a lot of Greco-Roman influence. They have a lot of beliefs that are contrary to the Christian or the beliefs of Jesus followers of the way. So the first thing he talks about is head coverings. Now, it was believed for sure that if you were a female and you didn't cover your head, that you were of an immoral person, okay? So if I'm saying you're of an immoral person, that would make you, in their eyes, promiscuous, prostitution, uh, sexual immorality, all that stuff that let you into that process. Because remember, the Greeks had a whole lot of Greek thought processes when it comes to uh what they do with their bodies and with sex and stuff. So Paul right away says women should cover their head when they pray and that a man doesn't have to have his head covered. Uh, 
but a woman should cover her head because if a woman was seen with her head uncovered in public, she was automatically determined as one of those because the, the Greek women, if they were seen in public without a head covering, that was a notation to people that, hey, I'm available, you know. Like here, if they're available, they're on the street corners, they are dressed provocatively, they got long, you know, they got all the things on them. I was going to say long fingernails, but they a lot of people have that today. But they are just dressed a certain way that says that. Well, in that day, that was the dressed a certain way. We don't wear a head covering so you can see the beauty of their face better and their long hair because their long hair you know, the hair was the thing. It was the thing of beauty for women as the prized possession. So that's why Paul puts that in there is you got to make sure your head is covered, right? All right. So then he also points out that long hair isn't long hair a woman's pride and joy for it's been a given her as a covering. But he also points out that men, it was disgraceful for men to have long hair because same reason, remember who he's talking to, because a lot of men have long hair, Jesus had long hair, but he's talking to the people in Corinth. And in Corinth, if a man had long hair, that meant he was a part of a male prostitution ring. So it's real critical for us to get in context with Paul's writing to. And if we don't look at that and take it into context, then we can get all this head covering and long hair stuff taken completely out of context. And that's when we can start looking at things and start casting judgment on people you know, and, I, and I've seen people always, before the women speak, they put a hat on or they put something over their head. I see people where uh, before they would pray, they would put a handkerchief over their head, the women would. And it's like, well, Paul said, well, Paul was talking to a whole different group of people too. And we don't live in Greece. That era's over. And Jesus gives us freedom over the reign of sin and he gives us freedom of that and we if we go back to peter's vision with the sheet that drops four times or three times with all the animals in it god gives us freedom and cleanness and the freedom of the holy spirit and we're not bound by any of that but paul knew these people would be casting judgment on believers because of where they lived. So he wanted to help them avoid such judgment and fall back into the realm they were coming from. So don't take yourself back into that. And, and so I think that's huge on what he's trying to tell them because of the culture they live in. We always have to be, remember, he just got through telling us in yesterday's reading, we got to be culturally relevant. And that's what he's doing. He's being culturally relevant. So after he gets through all that, he moves on to the Lord's Supper because there's people that are using the Lord's Supper basically for supper. 
<laughs> and he's like, no, man, if you're hungry, eat first, because the Lord's Supper isn't like that. The Lord's Supper is sacred. The Lord's Supper is supposed to be taken in unity together. The Lord's Supper is supposed to be taken as a moment where we realize how great it is that the Lord would give himself for us. And he goes through the whole process. And he says, you know, he, he goes through the whole Last Supper moment where he, the words of Christ are in red. This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he says, in the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, the cup is mine is a new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. And so he says, so the Lord's Supper is commemorating the announcing of the Lord's death until he comes again. So anyone who eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body. And our our remnant of people yesterday, we celebrated Friendsgiving and we took the whole concept of Friendsgiving out of the Bible from Acts 2, 42-47. And we had the Lord's Supper yesterday and we went through this very thing where we got to take it in a serious moment worthily so we didn't eat or drink damnation upon ourselves. And Paul says that's why you examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. Because if we eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, we're eating and drinking God's judgment upon ourselves. You know, and we went through that yesterday. We had a time where we just reflected and and had a time of repentance and, it's, you know, made sure that all is well with us and our Lord because we were in a moment with Friendsgiving where we shared all, which comes from that scripture passage I mentioned, Acts 2, 42 through 47. And if we're friends and we're giving it all to each other and to Christ, we gotta give all the things that separate us that are distractions to us to him. And so we had that moment. We had a beautiful moment of the Lord's Supper. And then later that evening, we had the most beautiful, <laughs> most beautiful. I mean, it was beautiful fellowship together with friends. And when I say friends, I'm talking about friends from the church, friends from outside the church, all those that decided they could, they would come. And it was huge. And that's what, you know, verse 47 talks about. Those who see the love of Jesus in you want what you have, and God adds to your numbers. And that's what happens in that. So it was huge, and, and I loved it. It was great, and I'm thankful for it. So Chapter 11, we dispel some things, we bring things together, and then we move to chapter 12, and chapter 12 is all about the body of Christ, you know, and Paul starts that with telling us, you know, that we all have a gift, and our gift is important, and our gift leads us to be wanting it to be used. God gives us a gift because he wants us to impart that gift to the church, you know, and one of the 
stories I love is a lady who had a gift of helping people once they came to church find a seat. She thought she had nothing to contribute to the church because she didn't think she had a gift, but the pastor noticed that she was very gifted in helping people feel comfortable. And so, because he noticed that she would always help people in the door, through the door, and find a seat, and it always made people feel comfortable. And so while she wasn't necessarily the greeter, she was like the escort person to help them find that comfortable seat. And so he gave her an official title. I don't remember what it was. You know, we don't like to use the word escort because the world has made that into something it's not. So he gave her a real official title and, and told her, look, this is your gift. And so she used that and she felt really used by the Lord and really felt like she was serving well. And people loved her because, you know, she could give people hugs. She could give people handshakes, and she would do that. And she did that up to the day she couldn't move anymore because she did that for years and years and years. And so Paul is telling us we all have a gift, and in that gift we are all a part of the body. And he uses the physical body and how the physical body has parts of the parts. There are many parts, and all parts are important. And I love how he says, you know, the, the little toe doesn't say to the heart, I'm not needed, you know. And one of the most interesting things is your big toe is vitally important to you for balance. And we may not ever think about that, but if you talk to some athletes or people that have run before and, and then something happens to that big toe and it has to come off, they have to learn how to walk all over again because they don't have that one digit on their foot that gives them balance. And so Paul uses that and says, you know, how the smallest of parts doesn't say to the other part, I'm not needed because it's all needed to make it all work. And some of the most vital parts in our working system are the ones not seen. So think about that. Some of the most vital parts of the body are the ones not seen. And that, like your heart, you don't see your heart, but you can't live without it. Your brain, you know, your brain and your heart. Jesus said we got to love with all of those. Those are vital. And so some of the most vital parts of the church are the ones that aren't seen. And we have to think about that when we're thinking, oh, I want to be noticed. No. That's not necessary. Sometimes the most vital parts in the church are the ones never seen. It's not always the pastor or the song leader or the worship leader or the piano player or the or the uh, drummer in the worship band or the guitar player. It's the ones not seen. The one that put the presentation software together, the one that does the IT, the one that does the church cleaning, those people are vitally important because without them, the ministry that's in motion doesn't stay in motion. And so Paul points out how we're all needed as vital parts of the body.
And then, you know, he goes into the different parts of the body and what were needed. So it's really good. I love chapter 12. You'll like that. We get to chapter 13, and chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians is known as the love chapter. And the biggest part of this is if I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. That's how Paul starts this chapter off in verse 1. And he ends it with this. The three things, three things will last forever, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. So it's 13 verses long, but here's the thing. The greatest is the, is the heart of this chapter where he describes love. And I'm going to read that because you can't shortchange this because we have to look at this and see if we live this every day. Love is patient and kind. Are we? Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable. And it keeps no record of being wronged. Man, we have to reflect on that for a minute and say, of these characteristics, do I fall into all those? Because I know love gets offended with a lot of people, and that's not perfect love. Real love is not offended. Real love does not get jealous. Real love does not boast. And real love is never rude. It doesn't have to get its own way and speak hastily to other people. Real love never demands its own way, even when it knows it's right. It doesn't always, it doesn't always have to be right. Jesus knew he was right when he was standing before Pilate, but he didn't demand it. It isn't easily irritated, and the best part is it doesn't keep a record of when it's wronged. Really, yeah. So when we get irritated with somebody, we don't keep that record and say, well, I'm going to get even. We don't do that. It doesn't rejoice when injustice comes on others, but it rejoices when truth wins out. So when someone gets what's due them, we don't say, ha, 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 I knew you had it coming. No, we don't do that. Love never gives up. It never loses faith and is always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. This goes back to Romans 12 where Paul says, don't pay evil, repay evil for evil because Keep doing good, because if you keep doing good, good will always outshine evil, because love endures through every circumstance and never gives up. Jesus is the perfect example of that, because love wins. <laughs> I just love this chapter. You can spend all day on that. And in chapter 14, which is our last chapter, it's, it's one that scares the mess out of everybody. It's tongues and prophecy, but really what it's talking about is speaking in a way that people can understand. And he sums it up in verse 6, the easiest. If I should come to you speaking in an unknown language, how would that help you? But if I bring a revelation or some special knowledge, 
or prophecy of teaching that will help you. Now that makes a difference. So the key words here is, if I bring you a revelation or some special knowledge, see, that's really what he's talking about when he's talking about tongues and prophecy so much. Speaking in a language that brings an awareness. Prophecy doesn't mean fortune telling. Prophecy means bringing to light the revelation of what the Bible is telling you, what the word is telling you, what the Lord is telling you, so that you get from that what the Lord wants from you and is going to do for you, going to do for you, going to do for you. You get me? It hasn't happened yet, but it's coming. So if that's futuristic, then okay, but that's what he's talking about. And when we do that, what's really interesting, what I love, this this verse I got from the pastor that I am filling in for from the church in Mattoon, who is now walking the streets of gold with Jesus. In verse 24 of chapter 14, if all you are prophesying and unbelievers or people who don't understand these things come into your meeting, they will be convicted of sin and judged by what you say. So let's take out prophesying and say, if you're giving them a revelation or a word of knowledge, okay, and one of my really close friends, Dan Bohai, <clears throat> he, excuse me, he uses, he, he uses, I've got a word of knowledge for you today. Because I and I really believe he uses that more so than prophesying sometimes because of the people he's with. Because people get so freaked out about the word prophesying because there's so many different entities out there, you know, and I have that in my own family. If you say the word prophesying, automatically their ears perk up and they're like, well, you're not a prophet, you know, and they start arguing and it's like, no, I'm not a prophet. I'm Okay, so I have a word of knowledge for you today. So let's take that word out, and we'll put in, if all of us are bringing a word of knowledge to the church today, and we're speaking in a way that people can understand it, so we're being relevant, and unbelievers or people who don't normally understand it see these things and come into our meeting place, it will bring conviction on them for their sins at what we say. And when they listen, their secret thoughts will be exposed and they will fall to their knees and worship God, declaring, God is truly here among you. See, this all goes back to Acts 2, 42, 47, because the Holy Spirit is in us, because the Holy Spirit has implanted himself in us, because he lives through us, that they see that through us. This goes to 1 Corinthians 13, because love is in us, and they want what you got. That convicting spirit is not a spirit of judgment. It's a spirit of what's missing in my life. You have it. I want it. God is here. <laughs> Let me have some of that. And I don't know about you, but that's really what I want people to see is God is in this place. I want what you have. 
For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace and is in all the meetings of God's holy people. And that's how Paul closes this out today. So I don't know about you, but I want to be a God, uh, not a God, but I want to be a person who reflects God so much that they see the Jesus in me. And that takes me all the way back to the song I mentioned several times, I Speak Jesus, because I know where I'm at and the assignment I'm in, not necessarily in my church, but what I'm doing in the day-to-day God's put me there for a reason, and it's to speak Jesus so that when people get that revelation and that word of knowledge, that they see Jesus in us, and they fall to their knees and say, I want what you have. How do I get it? So will you speak Jesus today? Start your week, this Thanksgiving week, Speak, Jesus. Let people see the Holy Spirit in you and make a difference this week in a way that only you can make because you're a part of the body and you're gifted. Have a great Monday. We'll pick it up again Wednesday as tomorrow is a day of reflection. Oh, I trust in God, my Savior.